faith and life. For some people, they're parallel roads. They never come into contact with each other. One never influences the other. Yet for some other people, faith and life are more like intersecting roads. Often they're running opposite each other, but where they do intersect, wonderful God moments can be experienced. But yet for just a few, the two roads merge into one, and the results are truly a highway to heaven. What does the road of faith and life look like in your world? this morning is blame. Um, we are concluding our message series on Minefield, um, and it's been based off of 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And what we've been talking about for the last six or seven weeks is how God has given us a sound mind. But when our mind becomes not sound, when, um, when we're not thinking clearly or we're thinking the way that God has created us or the right way in which is guided by God's word, then it gives a foothold for Satan. And it certainly can make life a whole lot more rough than what it otherwise would be. And so this morning, I want to conclude the series talking with you about uh, blame. Now, blame is an interesting thing. Uh, there's, there's kind of two extremes to blame, and neither of them are good. There's some of us in here that we always feel like we're to blame for everything, and that's, that's not good, and it's not healthy. It's actually somewhat nar narcissistic because it always becomes about us. And when we're in that place, either it will lead to depression or what it will cause us to do is something called blame shift in which we push blame somewhere else, which leads to the other group of, of people or the other extreme that is also narcissistic, and that is it's never my fault, that it's always someone else's fault, and it's someone else is always to blame. Now, it was interesting. I was uh, reading an article this uh, past week, and it was from the, the GOAT quarterback, the greatest of all times. Um, and, and I can say that even being a fan of the Buffalo Bills. Uh, but Tom Brady actually uh, was quoted, and in, 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 uh, he didn't write the article, but he was speaking a lot about this. And there's a lot of really good quotes in this article. But what he's really maintaining is that people like blame all the time, that in sports, it's always blaming this and blaming that. 
And listen to, this is just one of the quotes from this article that I lifted out uh, because I think it's really helpful when we understand blame. Uh, Tom Brady said this, life is, about, life is about always changing and adapting to different things. Let me say that again. Life is always it's, it's changing and adapting to different things. He said, today the world wants to blame, it wants to shame, it wants to guilt and fear everything all the time. Not bad at all for a quarterback. You know, where does... Where does this propensity to blame come from? Why, you know, honestly, like apparently in the 80s, no one was to blame. Well, in the 2020s, everyone's to blame. So somewhere that shift has happened. But, but, but where does this propensity to blame come from? Well, honestly, we see it at the beginning of the world. Just after God created uh, humanity, he had told Adam and Eve that you can eat of any tree uh, in the Garden of Eden. It's all for you except one. There's just one tree in which you can't, and that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and Satan comes and he convinces Eve that, you know what, God's just saying that because he doesn't want you to become more like him. And, and she goes and she eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She shares it with Adam and he does as well. And so God comes to take, take up the situation with Adam and Eve. And their, their, their initial response is, is to blame. Look at Genesis chapter 3, 12 to 13. So God's come to the man first and asks him, what in the world are you doing? And he said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. So God then turns to the woman. What is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So at the very beginning of time, God gives them this command. And right away, when God addresses it to the man, the man's ready to blame Eve. And Eve's looking to blame the serpent who convinced her to do it. And, and the serpent is without excuse. But even though they all want to blame someone else, the reality is, is all three of them share blame in the situation. Adam knew that he wasn't supposed to do it, but it was just because he was talking into it by Eve. Eve knew she wasn't supposed to do it, but it was because she was tempted to it by the serpent. So at the very beginning of time, we see mankind has this propensity to, to look for fault outside of ourselves and to see it in someone else. What's really interesting and what you probably aren't as aware of is when we go to the end of the world... The same thing's going on. That, that at the beginning of the world, mankind is always looking for someone else to blame, but we're told that even at the end of the world, it's going to be that way as well. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 gives a series of parables of stories of what it's going to be like at the end of the world. And in one of these stories, he sets it up basically this way, that the master goes away for a long time, the master being God. And when God goes away, when he leaves his creation, if you will, he entrusts his servants, the, the scripture says, with these talents, the, the servants being mankind. And to the one person, he gives five talents. And to another person, he gives two talents. And to another person, he gives one talent. And to the one that was given five, he goes and he, and, and he puts it to work. He's faithful to what his master's called him to do, and he earns five more. And to the one who is given two, he's once again faithful to his master's commands, and he goes and earns two more. But to the person who has just given one, he wasn't faithful, and in the end, he blames the master for his lack of faithfulness. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verses 24 to 30. 
So the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew you're a hard man. You harvest where you don't sow, you gather where you haven't scattered seed. So truth be told, I was afraid, and I went and I hit your gold into the ground. See, here's, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown. You knew that I gather where I don't scatter seed. Well, then you should have at least put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have at least received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so what Jesus says is at the coming of the Lord, at the end of times, humanity's not going to be any different at the end than it was at the beginning. In the end, those who were not faithful to God, those who weren't obedient, they're not going to own it. They're not, they're not going to take responsibility for their actions. It's going to always be someone else's fault. In fact, it's going to be God's fault. So we see in humanity, humanity is bookended. When we were created, we're blaming someone other than ourselves. And when God comes at the end, we're going to be blaming people other than ourselves. And everywhere in between, humanity is always looking for someone to blame. Do you remember that story about 12 years ago that uh, became famous, not only across this whole country, uh, but really uh, across the world? And it happened right here in the DFW area. Um, do you remember the, the story of, of the affluenza kid? Not influenza, not the flu kid but the affluenza kid, the, the, the kid who he was strung out on drugs and he was twice the legal limit of, on alcohol at age 16, plows his car into a group of people and kills four people. And it turned out that he wasn't to blame. Why? Because he was raised in a rich environment and he didn't know any better. What happened to him and... How does that fit into everything we're talking about today? For those of you who are too young to remember it, for some of you who are just kind of barely recalling it, here's just a short clip to jog your memory. Wearing a red hoodie and ball cap with a deputy but no handcuffs, Ethan Couch walks into the Tarrant County Jail. On the second day of a new year, an old face was back. It's just more of the same. Former Tarrant County Assistant I, District I, Attorney Richard Alpert prosecuted Couch's case. But I think this may be it for Ethan. Ethan, is there anything you would say to those families? The last time we saw Couch was April 2018, leaving 720 days in jail. Our first glimpse was 2013. This baby-faced 16-year-old, whose blood alcohol level was three times the legal limit, killed four innocent people in a drunk driving crash. He got 10 years probation angering victims' families. I pray the world never takes their eyes off this family. The world hasn't. In 2015, when someone saw Couch violating probation at a party and posted the video on Twitter, Couch and his mom took off for Mexico. 
Fleeing the country was another probation violation, and that's when he served those 720 days. Ethan, what would you say to your victim? When he got out 20 months ago, he had six years of probation to go. According to an arrest warrant filed Thursday, a patch that monitors his drug use detected THC in his system. That's the chemical in marijuana that causes a high. It means he allegedly violated probation again. I'm hoping that this is going to be the end of his breaks um, and that, you know, people will see that the justice system works, especially the families of the victims. Ethan Couch is no longer the affluenza team. He's a 22-year-old man accused of wasting every chance he's had. In Fort Worth, I'm Teresa Woodard. How messed up are we as a people to understand responsibility and personal responsibility that that as a society and as a people that we could say that someone was not responsible for their actions when they did what he did? They said he wasn't to blame and, and, and it was the way that he was raised and maybe his youth and all this other stuff. But we know that in the end he was to blame. Why? Because he hasn't done anything with his life since. He's just violated parole multiple times and I believe even to this day is back in prison. Humanity is always looking for someone else to blame. You know, Republicans are certain Democrats are to blame for the way that the world is. Democrats are certain it's the Republicans. You know, right now, with all that's in the news, everyone's trying to talk about who's to blame for Afghanistan. You know, and, and a lot of people, Biden's to blame for Afghanistan. Others are like, well, no, it was really Trump who set the state. He's to blame for Afghanistan. Well, what about Obama? He could have pulled him out. Obama's to blame. No, it was George Bush that went in there. Bush is to blame. Heaven forbid the Afghanistanians might bear some blame. Who's to blame for COVID? The Chinese are to blame for COVID. No, it was Trump that didn't do this. No, it was Biden who promised you know, this. No, it's the people who aren't getting the shot. They're the ones that, everyone's just trying to find someone to blame. Who do we blame for our kids' bad behavior? The parents blame the teachers. The teachers blame the parents. Everyone blames the media. Or wait, it's the kids' fault that they hang around with. Heaven forbid it actually be the kids themselves' fault. Who do we blame for the poor? Some like this welfare system. Others, it's systematic racism. Because it certainly can't be those who don't want to make anything of their life. Who do we blame for the riots? The police? Is it once again systematic poverty and racism? Because it can't be a bunch of anarchists that just want to stir up trouble. No. When's the last time you've heard someone say, you know what? I'm to blame. It's me. When's the last time you heard it? I can't remember. I don't. Does it ever happen? I, I kind of thought, you know, what we would do this morning is I'd have all of you stand up and, and raise your hand and say, I am to blame. I make many mistakes. Pastor is worse. <laughs> We're always, always trying to blame. Especially like when in our lives we become very discontent 
or we have a lot of disappointment? How do we handle discontentment and disappointment? You know, because in the end, it's like we want to blame something for that. You know, either once again, we're going to blame ourselves and, and that leads to depression or blame shifting or it's never. We didn't have anything to do with it. And it's always someone else's fault. And, and so how do you handle when, when you're unhappy in your job and you're just you're not at the level that you wish you were at? You should be getting paid more. You, you know, you should have a, a, you know, a better job, greater level of responsibility. Whose fault is it? Is it your boss's fault? Because we all know bosses are idiots. Is it your client's fault? Is it the economy's fault? Is it COVID's fault? Whose fault is it? If we don't like our relationship status, who, whose fault is it? Is, is, is it our ex's fault? Is it our current's fault? If we're unhappy with our children, whose, whose fault is it? We, we always want to find fault. And maybe we don't like where we're at in our faith. And so we can even blame God, like somehow, like it's God's fault that, that my faith isn't where it really should be. Or maybe it is the church's fault, or maybe it, maybe it is Pastor Greg's fault. When life is difficult, when we're perpetually unhappy, we're always, always struggling to find fault. It's either so much on ourselves that it's debilitating or it's someone else's fault completely. You know, if there's one story in the scripture that I think is really helpful in terms of understanding blame. It's a story that as pastors, we, we quote all the time and we love to quote. It's a story of someone named Job. And I know most of you know the story of Job and, and he's way overquoted in, in church, but we just, we, we have to speak about him when it comes to this concept of blame. Because you know what, if there's ever been a person in all of humanity that had a reason to blame God or, or, or to blame other people for something that happened to him, it was Job. Because really, amongst all the people in the world, there was no one like Job. He was incredibly faithful to God. And, and as a result of being incredibly faithful to God, God had blessed him greatly. Well, there's a side conversation that goes on between uh, Satan and God that, that Job does he's not even aware of. And, and if he was aware of it, why in the world is he being brought into this cosmic bet between God and Satan anyways? And suddenly Job has the, the, the rug pulled out from under him in life. If any of you in here think you're going through a difficulty in your life right now, I can promise you it pales in comparison to what Job experienced. Because in the matter of hours or a day or two, what Job finds out is, is that his, his children had gathered together for a celebration under one roof and a great wind came about and the roof came and fell in and killed all of his kids all at once. And immediately, like, all his kids are dead. And shortly thereafter, there, there's a group of raiders who come in uh, and come in and invade his property. They, they steal all of his livestock and they put all of his, uh, all of his crops to, the, to fire. And so now, like, in a matter of hours, Job finds out, like, all of his kids are dead and he's, he's bankrupt. He, he has no money. He has no possessions. And then he's inflicted with some kind of weird illness or disease or whatever, and he's covered in, in painful sores from head to toe. I mean, if anyone has a reason to complain, if anyone has a reason to blame, it's Job. But look at what Job does. Chapter 1. 20 to 22. 
When Job heard about this, when he heard about his kids all dying, when he heard about uh, his crops all being burnt and his livestock all being stolen, when his whole life fell apart in front of his eyes in a matter of hours, he got up, he tore his robe, he shaved his head to show how devastated he was. And then he bowed down to the ground and he worshiped his God. And he said, you know what? I came into this world with nothing. Naked I was born into it. I will leave with nothing. The Lord gives and the Lord also takes away. Praise be the name of the Lord. And all of this, Job never sinned by blaming God. Listen, how many of us would do the same? So many of us would be so quick to blame God in a situation like this. God, why, why do you allow evil into the world? God, I've been faithful to you. Why, why, why does this happen to me? God, why? But Job doesn't go there. The other thing about Job that's interesting is not only is he not blaming God, but as you read the book of Job, he doesn't blame himself. It's Job's friends who give bad advice that are saying, Job, you know what? If you would have done this, if you would have been a little more faithful, if he had gone to Sunday school in the third grade, right? They're giving all this different advice that if you had done this, this wouldn't happen. But none of that matters to Job. It's not about blaming God. It's not blaming myself. It's not about blaming others. He just, what he does is, is, is like he stands up, he brushes himself off, he bows down and worships God. You know, there, there's a phrase for what he did. And, and we can't say it nowadays because it's sexist. It's called man up. Now it's person up. Okay? Job, I'm not going to say it. Job man upped. He did like what that article that I shared with you about Tom Brady. Listen, life's difficult. Life's messy. Things are always changing. You're going to have to adapt. And you can sit there and you can feel responsible for it. You can sit there and blame yourself into depression. You can sit there and think, you know what? I had nothing to do with anything that happened. It's their fault, their fault, their fault, their fault. But what good does that do anyways? I just finished reading a... Um, a book, listening to a book. And I really want to share this story with you because as, as we consider this concept of blame and how we use blame to make excuses for um, maybe the actions of our life or the inactions of our life, um, I came across a story. It's also made into a movie, but it came out during the, uh, the pandemic, so I don't even know how many people saw it in the movie theater, but it, um, it's also, uh, I think it's about to be released the end of this month um, on video. But if you've never read this book, and if you haven't seen the movie, you need to, it's called The Twelve Mighty Orphans. It's about an orphanage right here in Fort Worth that was opened by the Masonic Lodge right around 1900. And, and the orphanage stayed open for 105 or 106 years. And it's in this incredible story about these kids who had such an incredibly difficult life, but in the midst of this incredibly difficult life, this coach um, from uh, this prestigious high school in Temple comes to Fort Worth to this orphanage and, uh, and, and just makes these, these, these orphans into people who they otherwise ought not have become. Um, I, I've got a trailer I want to show you that, that will kind of explain it a little more, then I want to talk about it a little bit more. Go ahead. 
you ever know of someone who feels sorry for themselves, if you ever have kids or hear of kids that it's not fair and, and, and I just, you know, I had a rough go. I was disadvantaged. It's not my fault. It's not my responsibility, whatever. You need to read the book. You need to listen to the book. You need to watch the movie. This, this orphanage, once again, was open for 105 years, but the story takes place um, during uh, about a 10 or 15-year period around the time of the Depression. And, and the stories of, of the kids that end up at this orphanage are heartbreaking. Uh, there's one who, at like, he was four or five years old, and he was just finishing fishing with his dad, and his dad had been in rivalry with this other group of people, this, these neighbors or whatever, this other clan. And as they're walking up the road, headed home, um, a couple of the guys jump out, and they kill their dad right there in front of them, shoot their dad in the back. And this kid, four or five, literally runs four or five miles to get home to tell his mom that his, he just saw his dad be killed and, and who killed him and so forth and as soon as he gives his mom the news his mom just starts packing her bags and everything and she tells her kids you know mom will be back and she runs to the train station and she never comes back uh, another kid that ended up at the orphanage, they were out in uh, a hot summer day in Fort Worth, and, and the dad was thirsty. They had kind of run low on water, and so he goes and drinks out of, of a creek or a pond or something and ends up dying of typhoid uh, a couple weeks later. I mean, it's just all these tragic stories of, of kids who, who watch their, their parents die um, horrific deaths or were just abandoned by their parents altogether, you know, it, it's struggling with, hey, why don't some other relatives want me? You know, they had all all these reasons to, to either blame themselves or to blame others. And, and then this like coach comes, as I said, from a, a prestigious high school in Temple, and he comes to this orphanage to teach science and to teach uh, uh, football. And, and uh, the story chronicles this like 10, 15-year period. And during this 10 or 15-year period, he takes these kids who, mind you, only have shoes to wear a half the year. They're only wearing shoes six months out of the year. They're, they're having to work jobs uh, at, on the farm and whatever to kind of keep the farm going. They're going to school. Uh, they, 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 they don't even have a football. That when the coach comes in at the very first game, he had to make a deal with the other coach. Hey, if we win, can we have the football? And the coach agreed. They won, and then they finally had a football. Their uniform was, was, were, were mismatched. They were never able to, to have field more than 12 people. There's only 68 boys in, in the orphanage, uh, 168 with boys and girls. They, they, weren't ever, they weren't ever even able, supposed to be able to compete with the, with the top high schools in the North Texas area, but the coach took on uh, the, the Texas Interscholastic League and, 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 uh, and, and found a back door in which they would be ultimately admitted into uh, the, the, the same uh, level of high school play as um, Polytechnic in North side, Highland Village, and all, all the top-tier high schools um, in, in Texas. And within five years of being at this school, he took that team to the championship. They only had 12 people. I, I was sitting there uh, at my daughter's game on Thursday. She wasn't playing, but she was dancing at the, at the high school game. And I'm sitting there counting, and I'm like, uh, oh, wait, 11? I'm like, so they had like one extra person like, that, that wasn't on the field at any one time? And, and like all the teams that are there, they've got, I don't know what they got, 45, 50 people. And as you read the book or you watch a story or whatever, all the teams that they're playing against are, are from these well-to-do schools, and they've got literally 40 and 50 people on their team. But you know, this, these 12 people, they're playing offense and defense, and somehow, some way, they go to the to the state championship, and then in that same like ten year period, they made the state semifinals another like three years. 
they have every reason to say, you know what, I've had such a horrible life. All the cards have been dealt against me. They don't even have shoes to wear, right? But yet, they overcome. They don't blame. They just man up under the direction of the coach. They overachieve and they overcome. What's our excuse? What's so working against us? You know, what's crazy is at like the end of the story, the author recounts what became of a lot of these kids. And over like the 10-year period or so, or 10 to 15-year period that the coach was working with these kids, two of the kids ended up going to the NFL. Two kids from the same team from an orphanage in Fort Worth, Texas, end up going to the NFL. One goes to West Point. A half a dozen become paratroopers in the Marines. I believe one won the Purple Heart. One becomes the president of Baylor. One works with Albert Einstein and Oppenheimer on the Manhattan Project. One becomes a lieutenant commander in the Marines. Another a cartoonist for the Dallas Morning News. We can blame all day long, but what good does blame do when all we sit there is just blame ourselves to the point that, that we just keep making excuses for why we can't, or if it's never our fault, the other extreme, and we always find ex you know, the, the blame in other people, that's why we don't. What good is it really? You know, spiritually speaking, God's not a fan of blame either. We see it in the Garden of Eden, God's not a, a fan of, uh, of blame. And we also see it at the end of time when the guy's like, listen, I knew you're a hard person. And listen, I didn't squander what you gave me. I still have the one bag of gold. I just buried it. And, and the master says, you're a wicked and lazy servant. He casts him to hell. When we try to blame other people for our, our lack of faith or our lack of, uh, of uh, following God in the way that, that he calls us to follow in obedience, God's not a fan of, uh, of blame. You know where blame's going to get you? It's going to get you to hell real quick. Look at Luke chapter 18, 9 to 14. To some that were confident in their own righteousness and were always looking down at others, Jesus tells them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. Now the Pharisee stood up there by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like those other people. God, I thank you I'm not like those robbers. God, I thank you that I'm not like those nasty evildoers or those adulterers. Oh, God, I thank you I'm not even like that tax collector standing up the way. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector... He just stood off at a distance. In fact, he was so ashamed he wouldn't even look up to heaven. He just simply beat his chest and he said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I tell you that that man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And for those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. There's so much pressure in life to appear to be perfect. There's so much pressure in life to 
to not mess up and to not make mistakes. And because of all that pressure, uh, we, we try to put on that illusion, whether it's through social media, whether it's, you know, just putting on the happy face when we go to work or when we go to church or all this different stuff. There's all that pressure, but you can only keep that facade up so long. Jesus says, whoever exalts themselves, whoever's pretending to be people that they aren't, you're going to be humbled. But if we humble ourselves, you'll be exalted. Listen, you can try to give the perception that your life is perfect, but God knows better. God knows that we're going to make mistakes, and he calls those mistakes sin. And the scripture says that if you try to blame others, when you don't take responsibility for that yourself, when you don't even believe that you do sin, because it's always someone else's fault, you deceive yourselves. God's truth is not in you. You make God out to be a liar. But if you confess that sin, if you acknowledge that, you know what? I do stink. I do mess up. I have made mistakes. God's merciful. And he'll forgive you. And he'll make it all right. You know your past struggles. And you know your failures. You know you could have done a better job as a husband or as a wife. You don't have to blame. You don't have to make excuses. Own it. You know what? You could have been a better kid. You could have been a better parent. You don't have to make excuses. You don't have to blame. Own your failures. You could have been a whole lot more patient, and you could have been a whole lot more loving and forgiving to the people around you over the years. You don't have to deny it. You know it. Own it. You could have spent more time chasing after God than the things of this world. I mean, we all could. And, and so we can sit there and come up with reasons and blame why we didn't, but just own that you haven't. You could have gone to church more. You could have been serving more at church. You know you could. Just own it. Here's the point. There's so very few things in life that after we do them, we're like, nailed it. Wow, I did the best that I possibly could. I was the best worker I was. I was the best spouse that I was. I was the best parent I was. I was the best kid. That doesn't happen. And so rather than just becoming utterly depressed by it and devastated by it, rather than it's always someone else's fault, just own it. Don't deflect responsibility. The beauty about God's gift of his son, Jesus Christ, is you don't have to be perfect. Because you can't be perfect. Our perfection is not found in ourselves, but our perfection is found in who Jesus is and our refusal to blame anyone else other than ourselves for our mistakes. When we look to Jesus for our perfection and we acknowledge our mistakes and confess them before God, he's faithful, he's just, and he forgives. That's how we're forgiven that's how we're saved, not pretending to be something and someone that we're not. Do you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious Almighty God, as we come before you with um, so many different um, situations going on in our lives, failures of the past and failures of the present, help us, gracious God, not to spend time pointing fingers, 
but to acknowledge our own, um, our own shortcomings, our own sin, and being restored and renewed through the gift of your Son. Merciful God, over the last couple months, we've been looking at a lot of different things that, uh, that, are, that affect the functionality of our lives and the happiness of our lives. Help us to be people of a strong mind and a sound mind so that Satan would no longer have a foothold into our lives and so that ultimately our lives would not have to have the drama, the hurt, the pain, the dysfunction, and all those things that we so oftentimes bring into it because sometimes our minds are not as sound as you've created them to be. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.